Hey everyone, this is DM Samuel, and you're listening to the Crusader Podcast, a show about the Castles and Crusades role-playing game. Alia Yakta Est, the die is cast. All right, everybody, here's the 18th episode of the Crusader Podcast coming at you. We got an interesting episode tonight. We're going to be looking at some history of the CNC game and looking at its predecessor, the game Sword and Sorcery by Troll Lord Games. But first, let's talk about what we've been doing in gaming during the pandemic and these exciting times that we're living in. Carl, would you like to start? Sure. And uh, I'm hesitant to talk about this, but I can, I can feel people judging me through the podcast. Uh, but uh, I've actually done some in-person gaming uh, with social distancing and with masks at my local game store. Uh, we had uh, previously scheduled, um, we did this last year and we're doing it again this year, some RPG camps, uh, teaching kids how to play role-playing games. And the parents wanted to move forward with them. Uh, every All the kids are wearing masks. We're sitting far away from each other. So I am uh, running a game with a mask on, with people further away than usual, just yelling into my mask, which muffles my voice. And so because of this, I end up with a little bit of a sore throat. Oh, no, it's it's Corona. It's not Corona. <laughs> I'm just yelling. But <laughs> it's still kind of a, a, in the back of my mind all the time. Uh, you know, so I, I don't, hopefully uh, we all make it through and get to play our games and the kids uh, uh, get to remember this experience of learning to play D&D uh, in masks at a game store. Now you see what you need are a bunch of different masks with uh, drawn or painted on the various <laughs> monster faces. And you can just, you know, when they encounter a monster. You know, kind of like the whole changing of hats that you've been yeah. doing at home. You just uh, yeah. change yeah. out your masks. Change out your masks. Very, very kabuki theater. Just yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly. <laughs> Pull up my own. Uh, here's my ogre mask. I fought an ogre today. They're uh, they're way late. I'll tell you about the game instead of just the fact that we're doing it during the pandemic, which is a big bummer. But the game itself uh, has been really fun. They are uh, uh, under siege by a goblin army that uh, uses dinosaurs and giant insects as artillery and cavalry. And so, like, these big goblin blimps showed up above their town and dropped a bunch of giant spiders on them. And then there's goblins flying around on giant mosquitoes. <laughs> and they have a dinosaur that's trying to batter in the the, the town wall. Uh, and the, the ogre's riding a pterodactyl. <laughs> and so <laughs> they managed to beat the ogre today. <laughs> so you're basically uh, basing your game on the flora and fauna of Arkansas. Yeah, giant mosquitoes <laughs> and big hairy <laughs> spiders and yeah, ogres. Yeah. Uh, I would love to play in that game. That sounds fun. An ogre riding a pterodactyl. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Our <laughs> druid turned into a... a uh, eagle and knocked down the <laughs> pterodactyl <laughs> the ogre fell to the ground. That's awesome. Pretty, pretty fun. All right, Stuarts, what have you been doing? It's been pretty much the same old, same old as the last time we got together. We're fairly semi-regularly um, doing online gaming with our, with our usual tabletop crew. Um, had we done... Um, North Texas RPG Con when we recorded episode 17 yet? No, we had not talked about North Texas at all. I should probably talk okay. about it. I had a lot of fun. <laughs> okay, so that's something new. So I can't even remember what we talked about the last time we got together. Uh, we did do North Texas, and we ran a game via Zoom for the convention, and that went over pretty well. Um, basically, I hosted... And Mike ran the game, and I would do um, screen share whenever we needed to, you know, put up maps of what we were doing, or if there were any character, you know, handouts, you know, things, you know, found manuscripts or stuff like that. You know, we could just pop them up there, and everyone could see it. Um, that seemed to work out pretty well, at least on my end, from you know, doing the screen share and all that stuff. I'll let Mike talk about how he felt about <laughs> actually running the game via Zoom. Um, but yeah, so that was something that we've done since the last time, uh, with gaming and it was pretty neat. Um, 
I still prefer face to face, but you know, if you're you're in the pandemic, you know, doing Zoom games or you know other stuff like that, it's it's not a bad substitute. At least with stuff where you can see the faces of the other players, um, that's what I really prefer. Um, I mean, think about the poor I people can... in the Spanish flu. I bet you they didn't get to play D and D the whole time. I'll bet mm. you're right. <laughs> Not one D&D game in the whole country. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it worked out pretty well, as Liz was saying. You know, it, it nothing beats a face-to-face game. But for what it was, I think it went well. I, I ran a kind of uh, dark Cthulhu-type victorious adventure and had various people playing various uh, detectives from the fiction of the Victorian era. So everybody was running actual characters from the era. So that was kind of fun. I didn't quite kill anybody, but I grievously injured three or four of them. So that was fun. Um, other than that, gaming wise, other than doing some stuff for Jim Wampler's, uh, fanzine for, uh, post-apocalyptic stuff called scientific barbarian that's pretty much all we've been doing as featured on in world did you guys see that hmm? uh no <laughs> i did uh, in, not in world or in world i think is how you're supposed to say it they um they shared some kickstarters that uh people should look at and wamplers was one of them awesome wow you're you're both uh name uh called i believe in the in the in world article oh my Oh, wow. Well, that's pretty cool. I imagine by the time this actually comes out, the Kickstarter will be over. So I hope that everybody who is listening actually got into the Kickstarter because it's going to be a pretty cool issue, I think. (laughs) Just a quick editor's note, Crusaders. You are not too late for Jim Wampler's Scientific Barbarian number one on kickstarter it just has days left but if you're listening to this podcast within a few days of its release go check that out on kickstarter if scientific barbarians are your jam and while i'm mentioning that i just want to mention we talked a lot about 3d printing and tom tolis's fat dragon products he also has a kickstarter right now so while i'm giving uh, jim wampler a plug i'm gonna give tom tolis a plug as well those are both kickstarters going on now and those are both cool dudes to support in the hobby. Thank you for listening. Well, I want to talk about North Texas real quick because I forgot about, I forgot North Texas happened. How uh, could you forget? Well, I nearly forgot. So well, I, I mean, I didn't forget it. that North Texas happened. <laughs> but I forgot that like, you know, you know, things, one thing drives out another, as they say. Uh, <laughs> here's a Tolkien <laughs> reference to the, <laughs> to the weirdos like me. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> I got to run, uh, run. Ugh, I didn't run anything in North Texas. That's not actually true. I did run something. Um, I got to play Castles and Crusades with uh, Douglas Zilsdorf using Ooh, fantasy yeah. grounds. So that was just really cool to see the the tools. I have not played a lot of online games at all and really none with virtual tabletops. And so seeing these virtual tabletops in use, Douglas really knows a lot about them and he was able to run me and Courtney through it, but it was um, uh, really cool to see the tools being used. I also uh, got to play in a... Um, Stefan Bacorny, AD&D game. I enjoy playing games with him. He's a hoot, uh, as they say in Arkansas. <laughs> they call people hoots. <laughs> um, and uh, <laughs> um, I also got to run um, some basic expert Dungeons and Dragons, the 1981 set, and we used the sample dungeon from the Moldvay Basic. Uh, and that went really well. And I was using, I was running over Discord with voice only, and I was copying in chunks of the map and image files as we went along. And that really, really worked as far as like being able to communicate where to go next and what you're seeing. Was that the haunted keep? Yeah, it's the haunted keep. I mean, it's, it's okay. actually, it's actually, there's remember. no, there's no ghosts. <laughs> like, I don't know why it's called the haunted <laughs> keep. There's no, there's no one dead at all. Uh, <laughs> in the entire of bone hill. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I modified it a little bit because there's like this kind of, uh, it, you know, there hints at there being were rats. You don't actually encounter any were rats in the uh, module, 
But um, I had Spoiler. one of the descendants. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Uh, I had one of the descendants of the family uh, kind of like uh, sneak in and, and, and act as a henchman. Uh, but really, he double crossed them because he wanted to bring the were rats back. Uh, <laughs> so they, they, there was a little bit of a Carl modifications to the to the to the adventure. Okay, but yeah, um, talking about fantasy grounds, they've got a lot of CNC stuff over there. I know they converted a, my modules over to fantasy grounds a couple of years ago. That was pretty well done, I thought. It's really cool because you can just click on whatever spell you're at or whatever equipment, and it'll just bring up the information, any of your special abilities. What does the special ability do? You click on it, and it just opens up a little tab that shows you the information. Yeah. It's it's really handy. I've heard it's got a steeper learning curve than Roll20, but it's got it's a lot more flexible. You've got a lot more bells and whistles than Roll20 has. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So anything that's more feature rich is going to have a little bit more of a, a learning curve. But I mean, yeah. your other option is to not use those features and then they have the same learning curve. <laughs> right, right. And of course, we played in uh, Chris Holmes's science fiction game. Oh, that was fun. Yeah. Forgot about mentioning that. He did a 50 sci-fi aliens invade small town USA. Jesse, what have you been doing in gaming? Well, I haven't ran a game since April, which is a big deal because I very rarely play in games. Um, usually the Castle Keeper or DM. Um, but I've got a lot of stuff going on right now. Um, all I've been doing is playing in my friend Max's Mutant Crawl Classic games every Sunday online, Ooh. which is also interesting. Um, oh, and so I have a problem with collecting hobbies much to the chagrin of my wife, but I bought a 3d printer and I've been printing fat dragon games tiles. And as someone that's <laughs> always been kind of a theater of the mind snob, I like miniatures. They're cool. I, I like painting them. They look nice, but I've never been somebody to really utilize them that much. Um, I'm like, I don't know. I've, I've got this thing like a week ago and I bet you it's got like an hour rest. I've even been waking up in the middle of the night. Like whenever we feed the baby, I'll run down, <laughs> take tiles or whatever I'm printing off the printer, start up a new file, run back and go to bed. It's a blast. Now I haven't got to use them and who knows when I will, <laughs> when we get to play in person. But that's not the point. It's fun. It's just even putting the thing together was fun. Um, so yeah, that's pretty much what I've been doing. Not much. I also recently got a 3D printer and uh, I, I, this is kind of really circular, this whole thing, because I first became interested in 3D printing on an episode of Save or Die, where Mike and Liz and Jim interviewed Tom Tolis and uh, Mike <laughs> came up with the theory of scaling down the prints to match yes. old school <laughs> miniatures and I really like True 25, like Ralph Partha Small from the early 80s. Yeah. When they were just tiny, like the tiniest little things you could see. And, and <laughs> I, I really like that scale. And I think it, it it really looks good on the table. But your your options are basically what they made then and then like 172 historical kits. Um, so I got a 3D printer thinking I could maybe scale these down. And it works. It works great. It's fantastic. I have a awesome. lot of more options now for my uh, uh, true 25 uh, scale tabletop. It's just addicting. I don't know, like just all the things that you can find online to print. And it's, <laughs> it's kind of a hobby in itself, but mm -hmm. it's been a lot of fun. Yeah. Our DM has got a 3d printer and we kind of have a deal with him. We get the files and, and he'll print some of them out for us and, it's like, you can print some for yourself, too, but we don't have a printer, so we'll buy the files if you'll just please print for us. Um, I'm really impressed, especially with the pieces that you can get now, that you can put the little LED lights inside of them so it looks like, you know, flickering torches and things like that. And it's like, that is so cool. <laughs> I really didn't know much about 3D printing, and I didn't realize how far it had come and how far down the price point is now. 
Like I thought everything would still just look terrible. Um, Mm -hmm. But everything kind of hit at once. Like Fat Dragon Games Kickstarter came out. And then the printer that I bought, the new version came out. So the old version went on sale on Amazon. And it was like, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Whoopsie. (laughs) And uh, here we are. Yep. Much like many electronics, we will probably be among the last to get a three, actually get a 3D printer. But it is pretty fun. <laughs> I understand 3D pointing to a degree. And then at a certain point, it's like, well, that's where the fairies take over and they make it work. I don't know how. <laughs> I don't know how they do it. Those fairies that are in that 3D printer, <laughs> they manage to make it work somehow. I don't know. Exactly. <laughs> it's magic. So tonight we got in front of us Sword and Sorcery by Troll Lord Games. This is a like an abbreviated game that they came out with. Um, in the early 2000s, late 90s, um, the copy that I have is inside the uh, a module, The Fantastic Adventure by Mac Golden, that he was um, nice enough to send me. So thanks again for that, Mac. And it's uh, it's pretty neat just to kind of see where Castles and Crusades started. Like, you can definitely see the beginnings of CNC in this game. Yeah, I remember when I first looked it over many years ago it hadn't quite clicked with me at the time i just felt like well this is you know arguably the first retro clone you know it was basically he wanted to do ad modules but couldn't get the ad and license remember this is they put this out right before the d20 began so you know but even for that you know for a little four page rule set you know, especially for low-level adventuring, this is... I can't see that you would need anything more than it provides. As a broad overview, it's definitely playable. And it's the funny thing is, is if this came out today, you know, there's how many super light RPGs there are, you know. This would really fit in right with them. You wouldn't know that it was 20 years old. Yeah. You could print this on 11 by 17 fold it in half, and... Boom, you're done. You got a rule set. <laughs> I'm particularly impressed with how all of the various um, character classes that we are familiar with, they pretty much distill into just four different archetypes. So whatever it is that you're interested in playing that you're familiar with, either through Castles and Crusades or AD&D or what have you, it will go into either the sword swinger archetype, the spell slinger, the sneak, or the spiritualist. And Alliterative. Yeah, but I mean, <laughs> it's just, they really just boiled it down into something very, very basic, but it still covers all of the classes that you may already be familiar with. You can definitely see the bones of Castles and Crusades in this. Uh, especially with kind of uh, uh, the way the the fighter breakdown is, where the fighter is just adding plus one every level. The sword swinger, I should say. Uh, The sword swinger is adding plus one every level. And then there's, uh, for the spill slinger, it's plus one every three levels. And then for uh, sneaks and spears, it's plus one every two levels. I feel like you could take that base attack bonus system, essentially, and uh, apply it to pretty much anything that you feel would be opposite of the class perspective. So like if a, if a, uh, if a sword swinger was trying to figure out something uh, to do with magic, maybe they get plus one, every four levels (laughs) 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 or every three levels, you know? Um, But that being said, one thing about this, that's very different from uh, castles of crusades and something that I love is it's roll under attributes. And I love roll under attribute systems. Yeah, although it does have the similarity of both attributes and saves. You know, checks and saves are all mm-hmm. attribute based. Although they renamed some of the attributes, which was kind of weird. I mean, it was like might instead of strength and toughness instead of constitution. I noticed that. And I wonder if, well, so might doesn't make any sense. Uh, but toughness. I think maybe they just changed it so they didn't have two C's because every uh, 
ability they have, every attribute oh, has a yeah. has a distinct initial. Because their comeliness is appearance, which again mm-hmm. a okay, yeah. Because I was wondering why why just change those two? Either don't change any or change them all. But you're right that that would make sense, especially for making little you know abbreviations for stat lines mm-hmm. and such. If you can just have an M I W D T C A on your sheet, that saves a lot of room on your three by five card. Uh, now I think the change to might is awesome. Because I I don't like the name strength for that stat purely because I don't think it's just a measurement of physical strength. I think there's some martial prowess that kind of gets built into that stat as well. Because being stabbed through the chest with a sword by somebody with a, you know, big, heavy muscles or somebody with little muscles, it really doesn't really affect how much (laughs) that's going to be detrimental to you. But uh, strength modifies all of these combat situations. And so I think to some degree, martial prowess is part of that. Well, it's kind of like you see all these gym rats, right, that are super ripped and everything. And I mean, statistically, they are strong. But then you think Mm -hmm. about like, that one angry old man that you know that has old man strength and he can just like <laughs> untwist a nut off a bolt with his bare hands just by swearing at it and sheer determination. That's more mighty. That's probably a poor example, but that's what I'm going no, with. I, old I man strength. That should be a yeah. stat. <laughs> like if you're over, I'm not going to say an age, cause that'd be rude. <laughs> if you hit a certain age, then you get a new stat. Old strength. <laughs> But yeah, the, I also noticed that the armor class or armor rank, as they they call it, is ascending. Which, which was, I can take that or leave that. I don't mind either way. I, well, I, think, I just find um, it more. I, I amuse. I find it interesting as a historical artifact because this is pre D twenty. So, right. You know that I find interesting. I've never been one of those people that hated ascending armor class. I, the only thing that annoyed me was that everyone was saying that descending armor class is too hard and you they couldn't understand it and that just baffled me but you know if you want to use ascending (laughs) use descending that's fine as long as i can subtract it from 20 and get my my one right that's all i care about (laughs) so liz you brought up the the um the ar at first like so in games that are derivatives of DD, it annoys me when they change stat names and other words like that. But uh, halfway through this, I did realize, like Mike said, this is pre D 20. So there was no, I don't think there was any open gaming license at that time. Right. And in the 1990s, TSR under Lorraine Williams was notorious for suing people. I mean, they took roll aids by Mayfair to court over their, their roll aids line they they tried cease and desist on websites in the 90s that were just covering D&D. They were notoriously litigious. So I can understand, especially in the 1990s, why people would be paranoid about that. It's, it's pretty interesting because it is a, I mean, it is a challenge, not a challenge. They, they must have done their research legally because, yeah, there is no open game and license in the back of this book. Mm-hmm. So it, it just makes you wonder, like, how much of that was their own flavor writing the rules and how much of it was to sidestep TSR? Yeah, to to yeah grind off the serial numbers. Yeah. So then I wasn't annoyed at it. I was annoyed at it at first, but mm-hmm. then I realized why. I mean, you can still be annoyed at it. Just you know, <laughs> be annoyed at TSR, not necessarily at well, the people doing that. So Now I'm not annoyed at it. Now I think it's cool. Because okay. they're getting around it. Yeah. So this is a minor point, I think. But it is something that I think is neat. So when you look at uh, the 1974 OD&D intro text that Gary Gygax wrote, he writes about all these authors that are influential on uh, Dungeons <laughs> & Dragons. And this has a similar first bit of text that lists all these authors that are influential on fantasy role-playing games, or Sword and Sorcery specifically, which includes Dave Arneson and Gary Gygax. 
And that's really nice. I mean, it's just a nice little thing to look at and see that Gary was kind of calling out these authors as being inspirational to him. And now uh, he is one of those people for people today. Yeah. Yeah. I think that list of authors was very intentional as far as whom the, the trolls were trying to pay homage to, like you said. Mm-hmm. And it is really neat that it's right up front. Yep. It's not hidden in an appendix or anything like that. Yeah. Nope. I like how they handled braces. By, by not handling them. Yes. <laughs> Want to be a halfling? You're a halfling. That was actually but one of my favorite things strength. about it. So yeah. he's a really strong halfling. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry like, about it. Just play your character. I, I love your that. attributes are your attributes, no matter what. <laughs> yeah, no pluses, no minuses. Just you want to be an elf, you're an elf. There you go. <laughs> Although they did list gnomes, but nobody's perfect. <laughs> So one thing that happens, I feel, when you take away special abilities from dwarfs and halflings is that you see people play humans a lot more. Because I think a lot of times people choose those for the special abilities, not because they actually want to be a dwarf or want to be an elf. They just want to have the special abilities. So when you make it, yeah, Yeah. when you make it just a a character choice, like what do you want to play? you see a lot more people choosing humans when there aren't all these extra binnies that they get from playing a a particular pointy eared or, or short guy. Or if they do, it's because they want to role play that race. They're not worried about the ad, the modifiers. I got into a big argument with my DM because I wanted to play a half ogre in a game and I wanted him to have tusks. And he's like, no, you can't have tusks. Why not? Because, well, you know, he, he kept coming up with these different rationales. Well, you know, you'd stand out. Well, of course I stand out. I'm a half ogre. <laughs> you know, it's, so it's so, and I said, why do you think I wanted to play a half ogre if I didn't want tusks? And he said, oh, because you wanted the strength and constitution bonuses. And without missing a beat, I said, if I can have tusks, you can take those away. <laughs> Here you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he wanted he wanted the tusks more than anything yeah, else. Yeah, I, I wasn't worried about the bennies. I just wanted the tusks. <laughs> but it's very interesting, though. Races are treated, you know, they're all treated the same. But looking at the sample, you know, the monster examples they give, those do have um, racial special abilities, mm. which, which I found very interesting indeed. It's like you've got, you can overpower, you can see in the dark, you can do this if you're a monster. Didn't, uh, didn't the monsters have attributes too? They did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which I, I don't necessarily agree with. Um, they also have a movement and I don't think that players had a movement called out. Can we just teleport? Move. <laughs> <laughs> no, players teleport. Well, I think they say in a turn, you can move. But they well, don't, yeah, yeah. you know, it tell just you doesn't how give far you, a, you can move. Which yeah. is another thing that I like because it's as someone, like I said earlier, that plays theater of the mind, I really don't care that you can only move thirty feet as your movement or whatever. It's it's more like is it realistic for you to get from point A to point B? Yes or no. Right. And yeah, I've gotten into arguments with people about that too. It's like, well, I can move thirty feet around, you know, really? So you can move thirty feet every single six seconds, like a metronome. <laughs> No, of course you can't. Sometimes you can, sometimes you can't. Sometimes you do farther, sometimes. It's that vagarity that I like, like you were saying, I think. The theater of the mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. This, the, the monsters having attributes, I can take or leave. But yeah, I did like how the various monsters have abilities, which is also very old school, you know, original D&D and stuff, you know, all one of the things in the original D&D they always said is monsters can see in the dark. And that included fighters or fighting men or magic users or whoever who happen to be in yeah. the dungeon that are NPCs. They see in the dark too, but you don't. Why? Because you're a player. Now shut up and roll for initiative. You know? Just like those pesky <laughs> doors that open for monsters but shut for everybody else. Shut for everybody else, yeah. So you have to spike them. Uh-huh. 
Yep. Another thing in the monster section is they do an average hit point instead of a, a hit die or a number of dice you roll. Uh, that's a very modern <laughs> uh, uh, idea that that's presented here 20 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. I don't necessarily like it. <laughs> but but uh, 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 I do think it just presents the challenge of breaking away from it. You know, you, not every giant has to have 80 hit points. You know, you can it's, yeah. I call it an average for a reason. Uh, I have that problem uh, when, when games present those of just, I tend to lean into the, well, it gives me the number here. I'll just use that. And uh, it's way more fun to just roll the dice and see, you know, this is a really weak ogre. This is a really strong ogre or whatever, you know, it's, it's, I, I don't think that's something I've ever talked to anybody about. I, that's interesting. I've, I've never really asked anybody if they roll hit dice or average them or pick the number or what all, but so you roll them, Mike and Liz, what do you do? In the early days, back when I started gaming, <laughs> um, <laughs> It always annoyed me to have these published adventures where there would be six orcs in a room, hit points, eight, four, four, two, one, one, and two. You know, like, there's a one hit point orc? Come on, that's ridiculous. So I went and did the average numbers from the 80s and probably 90s as well. Hmm. But yeah, as I've, as I've gamed nowadays, I, I do prefer to have a range of numbers because, you know, not... You run in, you enter a room with six humans. Now, are those six humans all going to be equally robust? No, of course not. Some are going to be better, some worse. So, I think currently I'm closer to Carl's mindset in that regard than I used to be. These days, I don't roll hit points until the monster's attacked. So, you swing a sword at a monster and you hit and you roll your D8 damage... Then I roll the hit die right next to it, and we see. <laughs> but you do it out front. Oh yeah, everything's. Out. I don't have a. Oh, that's I interesting. A, I don't own a screen. <laughs> <laughs> when I when I run uh, fantasy RPGs at cons, I frequently roll out front, and that seems to upset some people. Uh, it's been kind of weird. <laughs> I, I, I think it's a matter of preference. I don't think you know either one is you know right or wrong as opposed to the other. For some things, I personally like the mystery of some stuff. I, I like not knowing how close the monster is to death after I did seven you know, hit points of damage to it. Um, I kind of prefer the game style where the DM lets me know by the description, you know, it's like, you know, blood is pouring, you know, out of the, the gash in his side, you know, he's swaying on his feet, you know, you've got the description that lets you know, this thing is close to death, mm -hmm. um, rather than, you know, okay, he's only got three hit points left. Yeah, I, I don't want to know that. But there are players who do want to know that. And there's nothing mm -hmm. wrong with that. Um, so, yeah, with with me, I like having the different kind of hit points for a group of monsters and I'm totally all about rolling behind the screen and, you know, doing the storytelling, you know, description of, you know, how robust the monster is as you're fighting it. Yeah. Um, I've come into a similar argument I've heard from some people about armor class and, you know, it's like, do you tell the players the armor class of the monster? And I've been the opinion, no, and I don't. And I mean, you will eventually find out. Right, as if you do the math, eventually. Yeah, right? it's like, well, I rolled a 14 and I hit, so I can pretty much be assured that the armor class is the, you know. Least 14. <laughs> That's right. I only tell the armor class when I get annoyed. Like, if I have somebody, it's like, <laughs> I rolled 13, did I hit? And I say no, and then the next person's like, I rolled a 12, did I hit? It's like no, because it's like, <laughs> well, is 14, didn't 14. Hit, so. <laughs> it's like, well, if thirteen didn't hit, twelve is certainly not going to hit. So uh, <laughs> maybe there is something to that descending armor class is mathematically too hard. <laughs> <laughs> For averages, I admit that I've I've always not been somebody to roll. Except when I first started D D, like like every orc had different hit points and stuff. Um, but I'm too lazy and I'm not smart enough to keep track of all of them. 
to be honest. <laughs> so I always kind of, if they're four hit die, I kind of average that or whatever they are. And maybe I'll give like, if there's some orc archers, maybe they have, you know, seven hit points. And if there's just some orc fighters, maybe they have like four or five or whatever, or vice versa. Mm-hmm. Um, so I am kind of a fan of the, the average hit points here. Which is interesting that they didn't change hit points to anything else. Which levels is interesting because they don't tell you they don't tell you how to level up. Which I know I think this yeah. is probably going to be expanded on because the monsters have like a defeated value, which gives you your right. XP points. I'm assuming. Well, again, I think it was a matter of you know depending on what mo- levels this module's for, you ought to make characters of this level, and you know beyond that. Just wing it was the impression yeah. I got, but absolutely. But you're right. I do think that they were trying to, you know, at least give you a wink, wink. This is how many XP. If you're happening to use an RPG that uses experience points, <laughs> <laughs> so. But uh, yeah, another term they changed: disposition instead of alignment. And they gave a, a basic alignment. Yeah. The way they said it, it was just kind of like, eh, that means you're lawful or chaotic, good or evil or neutral or whatever, you know? Just or any combination of, yeah. yeah. A five-point alignment, if you will. <laughs> or, or even more, point. because you a could two? have a lawfully chaotic, good, evil guy. <laughs> <laughs> it Which, does say any possible combination. Combination, there. yeah. Which... I don't know if any of you guys have ever saw the original City State of the Invincible Overlord by Judges Guild back in the late 70s published. I've not read it. Um, one of the funniest things I find in there is it says the, the Invincible Overlord is lawful evil with good tendencies. <laughs> and I just like, wow, how do you... <laughs> Every once in a while, he does something good, and then he feels really guilty about it afterwards. And it's like, never again, never again. But he, but he slips. He's like, uh, <laughs> he's like Darth Vader's last ten minutes of Darth Vader's life. Right? <laughs> That's a good lawful part, evil. He slips in. Good tendency. And then, yeah. Or did he just have an alignment violation? That's why he died. Possibly. He was. Well, you see the kind helmet. Of an paladin really. The helmet. Helm of alignment changing. Oh, Luke takes that was the, the helmet off. of Anakin all this time. <laughs> yeah. 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 Helm but. of alignment tendency could be a new magic item. <laughs> yeah, you keep your alignment, but you have a tendency now. Yes. Every so often you do something that is completely opposite to your alignment. You just can't stop yourself. Because that's your tendency. Yeah. Yeah. Granted, I wouldn't want to give this rule set to somebody who asked, what is a role-playing game anyway? <laughs> um, but if you already have the concept down, this is perfectly usable. What are your opinions, all of you, on appearance stats? How do you feel about those? I used to like them, but I do not anymore. I, I, I think it just cuts too much into the concept of the character. I mean... You describe your character. If you want them to be attractive, they are. If they're not, they're not, you know. And what is attractive anyway? You know, especially when dealing with mm-hmm. other races. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, I've played in a lot of games, and I still do, where if you have a high charisma, everybody or almost everybody at the table automatically assumes that means that your character is either very beautiful or very handsome. Um, well, that's been a problem from the get-go. Yeah, and so I can see where having a separate appearance mm-hmm. stat can help to, you know, pull that apart from, you know, basically your persuasiveness. It's like, well, you might not be terribly attractive, but because of your high charisma, you can talk anybody into just about anything. So I'm, I'm kind of, I'm torn about the appearance stat. I think some players and some tables need it. And if you're at a table where you don't need it, by all means, don't use it. That's an interesting point. And the one I had not considered is, is its functionality is less of, of how it affects the game and more just 
divorcing it from the charisma stat so people can just focus on what that stat's actually intended to be. I think Liz summed it up. Like, I understand, like, why it's there. But I also just think I'm fine with charisma. I don't... Mm -hmm. Like, I get it, but it's... I don't know. It's... If I had an appearance stat, I would probably tell them, rather than roll it, just pick a number that fits with your character. That's an interesting solution. Personal physical appearance. You know, you don't don't roll it. It's just... And it would still have the effect of divorcing it from charisma. Or as much as it can, there's always going to be some people. And it's also got to be, to some extent, based on... You know, the appearance that I mean, it's it's true in American society. It's definitely true in medieval society. It really just was the status quo. It doesn't necessarily mean X NPC is going to think, oh, they look really good because they may not go for whatever the status quo is of the time. Yeah. Or your character is a redhead and the NPC you run into, they prefer blondes. So it's like, I'm not that interested or, in you. You know, it, I think it was 13th century Europe um, where women would like pluck the their hairline to make it go back. Oh, yeah. So you have the very high forehead. And then they would take totally take out their eyebrows. <laughs> and that was that was beauty at the time. To most of us, we'd go, yeah, what happened to her? (laughs) (laughs) Flash fire. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) Are you okay, ma'am? Oh, have you been trying to light the grill again? Uh, (laughs) So, yeah. And again, that with cultures, with races, you know, you you run it, it. It's just such a slippery slope. Well, then you have to make a, then you have to make a matrix table. Okay, so the NPC is from this culture, and I am from this culture, so we meet in the middle on the table, and so for that PC, my appearance is effectively a nine. Okay. (laughs) And while it might hurt my old school cred to say that I'm not interested in that kind of table. Um, (laughs) It's not. It's very AD and D. Yeah. For every appearance stat, there has to be a creeper stat. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. How big of a creeper am I? Oh, I'm a huge creeper. Okay. Well, then, hot dog. I can see that coming into play at conventions too, (laughs) because I think we've all met some creepers at conventions. Never, never. (laughs) Which probably means I was the creeper. But anyway, there is no creeper stat in sword and sorcery, though. Just yeah, to be clear. (laughs) But maybe there should be one. So, how would you uh, take this? where there's no experience points, there's no spells. Um, when you look at that, would you just let people make up spells uh, as they go? I think that's what I would do. I think I would just say, yeah, you cast whatever, locate uh, 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 mushrooms, and now you can find the mushrooms you were after or whatever. Hmm. Probably using these rules as they exist in this truncated form, I'd probably be using them in tandem with, say, AD&D, mm-hmm. and I'd be using it to streamline it. It's like, so, it's like, okay, you like to play an AD&D cleric. In this game, you are a spiritualist. You go by these rules. Take whatever AD&D spells you like out of the player's handbook. Yeah, I I would probably want to use some other source for spells. Um, If I had to just use these rules, I had nothing else on hand. Yeah, that's what I'm assuming. Um, Just this. Just this. I would probably just, like Carl said, I'd I'd just wing it. It's like, well, what do you want to do? And I would say to myself, okay, is that a first spell rank, you know, equivalent power or whatever, then okay, sure, you can cast it. Well, I want to say, and this was many, many years ago on the Troll Lord forums, um, somebody had brought up the sword and sorcery rules, 
And Steve or Davis or both of them had mentioned that they one day, haha, in the future, would like to expand upon them and, you know, have an expanded set of these rules available for people to download and use. And they never went anywhere with that. They probably, you know, something shiny came along and, you know, like, okay, we forgot about this. (laughs) But... But yeah, I want to say like maybe like around 2003 or four, like really long time ago um, on the forums, they were talking about expanding the sword and sorcery rule set. Of course, it may have just ended, would have ended up like the white box CNC, you know, where the spells were, you know, a sentence, Mm -hmm. you know, that was it. That's what I expected reading through here when I got to spells which is just on the second page <laughs> i expected there to be like just a a quick little you know line couple words type deal um so i was kind of surprised that there wasn't but i agree with you guys it would i think if again if you just had these it would definitely be a judgment call which this game has already got a lot of judgment call potential in it you know it seems like it's kind of stressed to do judgment calls yeah yeah this is a very rules light system I think we've really covered pretty much everything in this couple pages here that all this game yeah. is. Um, I mean, to reiterate, four pages. Yeah. So I was thinking we could maybe each go through and say one thing that we really like about it and one thing that we don't like about it. Okay. I think I'll start. What I really like about it is uh, the archetype for the classes. I think that's one of my favorite things for sure. It's four classes, but I like how they spell out archetype sword swinger but then they give you like there's probably 20 different examples knight gladiator fighter bounty hunter berserker musketeer you know ranger ronin all these different things um and i like that because all those things are sword swingers when you get down to like the spiritualist cleric druid mystic shaman Again, they're all spiritualists. They're an archetype that's easy to to put in a box. And like, you know, a cleric is a spiritualist. One thing I'm not a fan of is, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about um, magic points in general. So the spells thing is a little, eh, not my favorite thing, probably. Um I think I had to read it twice to understand it instead of just once, like all the other paragraphs in the game. Um, so, yeah, I, I would say those are my favorite thing and least favorite thing. One thing about the magic points uh, is the way it's written is that if you have, for example, a 16 intelligence and you're a spell slinger, you get plus two magic points in each level of spell power which is a huge benefit to be level five and suddenly have three level three <laughs> spell. Yeah. At your disposal. Fireballs for days. Fireball, fireball. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I like archetype too, but for uh, um, maybe a different reason, I just think it's the right word. I think, <laughs> I think when we talk about classes, what we're really talking about are archetypes. I, I've seen people look at, for example, uh, AD&D first edition and say elves can't be rangers. That doesn't make any sense because they're thinking <laughs> of classes as professions. But when you think of classes as archetypes and the archetypical ranger is, of course, Strider and rangers in that story are, in fact, humans, um, then it makes more sense. And so I just love the term archetype. I like, I'm always happy when I see it used in an RPG. I'll do you one better. Okay. Paladin. Mm-hmm. Human paladin. Well, why do they have to be lawful good? Because the archetype is Sir Galahad or Roland. I want to have a, a an evil type servant of an evil god. Well, that's a different archetype. That's not yeah. paladin. <laughs> right. I mean, paladin literally does mean like a just and good knight. I mean, right. it, it, is, it is a, a not a... Not a just a the servant of a deity is not what defines a paladin. It is their goodness. Um, mm-hmm. Really, really bizarre argument. I've seen it multiple times. So yeah. Um, uh, so I, I just like the, the beginning. 
Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and I think um, I really lean into archetypes when I play, even in Castles and Crusades, where anything can be anything, and I think that's a fine way to approach it. Um, and I, uh, I really like uh, still leaning into those archetypes. Um, I think it's weird to me that they include disposition i i think i don't think it's necessary at all it's it's just a weird holdover so like they they have their kind of quote unquote alignment system there's no reason they need that it affects nothing within their game rules as presented here um so that's something i would certainly you know uh feel like is just a, a holdover like just to kind of put it in that frame of of reference um of like this is wink wink another fantasy role playing game sort of kinda but not really, um, but it's totally unnecessary. I kind of think it's totally unnecessary in every fantasy role playing game though. <laughs> well, like I mentioned um, near the beginning of the episode, like everybody else, I really like the archetypes as well. Um, She's just reminding us that she was the first to bring. I the first one to say how much I liked them. But obviously I was right because everyone else likes them too. Haven't got to me yet. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The one thing that I'm not too keen on with this particular set of truncated rules for myself is the fact that they give you no way of leveling people up. Levels just it's two sentences and that's all they say about levels as characters adventure they gain experience as experience grows characters become more skilled in combat and spell use it's like that's great um what (laughs) Mm -hmm. um so again i would feel as though you would want to use this in tandem with perhaps a more complicated rule system that you don't want to necessarily use for everything, but you can still use as a a framework for things like leveling up and taking spell ideas and how the mechanics of the spells might work in gameplay. So yeah, I'm not terribly impressed with the guidance they give you on on leveling. (laughs) Okay, well, I like races. I like how they dealt with races. And I think later on in Castles and Crusades, you see a bit of that with the half-elf, where there's no specific thing for half-elf. It's, well, you're a half-elf, which you basically decide, are you following your elven lineage or your human lineage? If you're following your elven lineage, you're, you got elf stuff. If you're human lineage, you got human stuff. The end. Races... The way they're handling it, since there's no benefit to them, it's totally a role-playing choice. And I like that, because then you end up with people, like Carl said, who are actually, if they're a a demi-human or whatever, they're there because they actually want to role-play that, Mm -hmm. not because they're looking for a combat edge. Uh, Do not like. And it's a nit to pick, but... I've never liked, and it's something 5e does that I can't stand. Um, I don't like monsters having attributes. I just don't. They're monsters. They don't need to follow PC character rules. They've got their own rules. That's why they're monsters. So I don't like that. Is it yeah. so like when they introduce attributes, it feels like they're justifying why an ogre does 1d10? You right. Know, he doesn't get the bonus for his strength score. So, I mean, like, what's the point? Right. And why, why does he do 1d10? Because he's an ogre. Move on. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, we don't need to have this discussion. Um, and that just starts to me, uh, when I see that, I feel like they're beginning, you know, oh God, it's the stack stat creep. It's going to be pretty soon. We're going to see how goblins have rope use and whatnot. Like three got really bad with for a while. And I, I, I still remember the first adventure I bought for three, which was necromancers, uh, Rapanathuk. And it's like half the book was stat pages. 
for you know you had a whole page of stats for every goblin or every you know whatever you ran into and i'm like do i really need to know this goblin's escape and evasion skill do i really mm-hmm. need to know their rope use and that was an argument from back in the 70s was you know well why don't you use pc rules for monster rules because they're monsters and half the time certain people who shall remain nameless would make that argument because what they want to do is they want to be able to estimate what a monster can and can't do by sight or by it, you know, that sort of thing. And it's like, no, no. I think it's also a sense of fairness. The monsters should be playing by the same rules that I am playing by, or this is not a fair fight as if, having fair fights was what Dungeons and Dragons or fantasy role-playing games or Castle and Crusades is all about. Right. Uh, it's not about having fair fights. It's really about winning unfair fights. <laughs> <laughs> knowing when to hold them, knowing when to fold them, knowing when to walk away, knowing when to run. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I, 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 but that is, you're right. That's been, I think, building up over the past few decades is this idea of and i don't know if it's computer games or what but just this idea that every fight must be balanced every fight my character gets in i need a 50 percent chance of success at least well i mean i think some of that existed as early as od and d you know what are what are dungeon levels if not a, a balance type system you go to dungeon level one dungeon level two dungeon level three you expect a certain kind of monster doesn't mean something else couldn't show up right but you do expect at least some level of balance i mean otherwise every D game would be like a dragon shows up and eats you and then it's over <laughs> you know <laughs> if the dungeon master wants to win if the person running the game wants to win they're gonna win you know that it's not about winning um but i mean one thing about this monster section that i kind of just realized as you were talking about this kind of extra information is it's four monsters on like one and a half pages <laughs> of monster section. This could have easily been, you know, four times as many monsters with less information and still ran perfectly fine. Yep. It could have been stat lines essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, I agree. So mm-hmm. one thing that does where you have that kind of creep in of information is it it kind of makes these step blocks less usable, at least less usable quickly. You get more information, but you it's harder to get to the information you need. Right. I, th- I think it's kind of a relic of its time because with third edition coming out, I don't know if third edition would have been out out yet, um, but the stat blocks look like third edition. I think it's kind of, it's kind of doing what C&C does well, and that's, having a simple game that also has substance to it. Whether we agree that that substance is needed or not in, in this scenario, I think it kind of shows. I mean, the whole rules, like you said, are two and a half pages, and then the monsters take up a page and a half. So it, it kind of does bridge that gap of you got the crunchy monster side, but then you got the very rules light aspect of the game, which is very yeah. 2000-ish. Well, here's a question, um, which I don't have any copies on hand, so I can't answer it, but I know you guys do. Are the stats of the monsters in the module itself statted to that to the Sword and Sorcery game? Are there those attributes? It's much smaller. Dark Fairy Bites, they do give you the stat line, and they tell you how many hit points they have. But does it have its might, its intelligence, its dexterity? Yeah, it gives you the stat line. Might 9, intelligence there. 12, wisdom 9, okay. 14. Okay, well, they're, mm-hmm. they're consistent. But in which case, you've already got plenty of monsters. Why'd you need those monsters in the back? Well, in case you don't want to fight dark fairy bats. <laughs> Who doesn't want to fight dark fairy bats? I'm not sure what dark fairy bats. I got to read this. As opposed to be light fairy bats, you know? <laughs> I'm a fairy bat for good. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I guess maybe because um, the stats are the saving throws, and uh, in Castle Crusades they kind of fixed it by just having it, you know, oh, lean physically. You know, or I didn't. 
I didn't even think about that, but you're right. That wouldn't be necessary since they couldn't just give the generic saves as fighter or anything, mm-hmm. you know. They would need those stats so you knew what saving throws to roll for them. Okay. You're so dang okay. smart, Carl. God. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, it would have taken me until I had to roll a save for a monster to figure that out. For sure. It had, well, it slipped by me too, so I, I had totally... <laughs> not thought of it from that point of view. So yeah, I suppose in that those numbers are necessary then. So I think ah. the big question for each of us is would we run this game in 2020? And for me, I think I would. Um, I do like that. It's so simple that it does allow you to build on it in any way that you want to. So I would run it. Absolutely. I think it would be a lot of fun to run. I like, I like, there's there's a certain level of rules light. I think some rules light games kind of let the the person running the game just decide what happens. And I that's not my style of game. I don't like to just decide what happens. I like the dice to matter. I like the choices of the players to matter. Uh, so this, you know, there's hit points. There's the number of spells you get. There's armor rating, uh, we'll call it. Um, so there's enough... I guess meat on this bone to still feel like a game. I like rules light where there's still the functionality of mechanics that I can not just rely on what I want to happen. Uh, I can just rely on what happens by looking at the, you know, I feel like running a, a good RPG is more like scrying bones than it is like writing a novel. I don't want to feel like I'm writing a novel for the players. I want to feel like I'm trying to figure out what's happening with them. I love that. That's one. I agree with that 100%. Yeah. As I've said before, to me, that's players get to play and they're having fun by their choices and their roles and their reactions as a GM. My fun is seeing, yeah, seeing how the dice roll, seeing the decisions they make and what the, what the consequences of those are. I can tell a story, but you know, that's not a lot of fun for the people probably hearing the story. So I can't, I can't argue that point. So Liz. Um, I think I would run this. I'd probably fill in any blanks um, with whatever I remembered from Holmes basic to make a, a fully cohesive game. But I think the two would marry well with one another. I'd run this either for the experience or if it's, you know, we're somewhere with some people with, we've got our polyhedron dice out in the car and our, <laughs> in our glove compartment as our emergency set of dice. Let's play something. And I had this as a copy, then yeah, I'd, I'd run it. Um, for a regular game, I'd probably want something with a little more meat on it, but, but yeah, just especially for a one-off. Absolutely. I've seen people take real rules like games and print them out, fold them up with some miniature dice and put them in like a Altoids tin. And I think that this <laughs> game would, I think this game would be perfect for that. Like you could you could make up a bunch of these, <laughs> throw one in the car, throw one in your backpack or whatever. And yeah. So yeah, Troll Lord, republish this. Expand it. Put it out there. Yeah. Swingers, slingers, sneaks, and spiritualists. It sounds like a, a <laughs> 70s uh, swinger <laughs> propaganda <laughs> film. Yeah, baby. Yeah. <laughs> I just see this D&D party and they're like all wearing scarves. And a magic user has a plunging open neck shirt with a medallion. And I, I don't think I want to play this I, anymore. No, I, I, no, I saw, I'm, I'm picturing a dragnet cop going like, nothing on these streets but swingers, slingers, snakes, and spiritualists. <laughs> Would the cop have a sweet stash? Of course. <laughs> yeah, sweet 70s stash. And a ton <sighs> of chest hair. Oh, a ton. A metric ton. <laughs> Okay, Jesse, stop us before we kill again. <laughs> yes, please, please do. <laughs> yep. All right, so I think we are at the end. Um, closing thoughts. I think it's a cool game. 
Uh, I'm glad that I actually took the time to read all four pages of it. Uh, we'd love to hear from our listeners. Uh, please email us at the Crusader Podcast at gmail.com or visit us on Facebook. Um, and we hope to see you next time. Bye, everybody. Bye. Goodbye. Bree. <laughs> Just like Bree Arc, but it's trimmed down of the excess crunch. Yeah, it's what the cool That's goblins free. are saying these days. Bree. <laughs> It's a swords and sorcery version. Yeah, the Brie. They just say Brie. <laughs> Mostly because you killed them before they finish saying, but you know, whatever works. They say Brie, you stab them, and then they go, Yuck! <laughs> <laughs> Some games may change, but the castle's crusade siege engine remains the same. Though I'm not sure appearance is necessary. <laughs> well, a zombie has an appearance of three. <laughs> so no zombie is going to be able to attract or seduce another zombie. <laughs> <laughs> well, for a PC character, it can be anything from 18 to three. So you could have somebody that's as ugly as a zombie. Yeah. That's harsh. But a zombie would not be attracted to another zombie, only to, you know. Hot, hot people. <laughs> I I like to think that zombies only care about what's on the inside. <laughs> yeah. They like they like somebody. Listen, they like somebody for their brains. <laughs> oh, wow, that's deep, Carl. That physically hurt me. Eh, deep. You just had to. Take it, something that's good and right and decent and turn it into a zombie apocalypse. Well done, Carl. Well done. <laughs>